morning, and I don't mean those that are literally packing, but I mean those that have brought the 66 books of the canon. If you go with me to the 16th chapter, and for just a few minutes today, I'd like to talk about the five phases of transition. The five phases of transition. Transition. I believe this word will be a blessing to you as it was a blessing to me, as God gave it to me this week. As most of you know, my sophomore year of high school, the drugs had become so bad in public school that my parents decided to take me out of a public setting and place me in a private setting. And I finished my sophomore year, my junior and senior year in Assembly of God High School in Downey, California. Well, my parents did not know that most of the kids that were in the private school had been kicked out of the public school because of drugs, and so they were all a part of the private school. However, I went to school with some very wealthy friends. Most of my friends, when they turned 16, I remember Carol and uh, Carl and Carol, they were twins. They got matching dusters. His was lime green. Uh, hers was root beer brown. Dave Phillips got a 72 Stingray Corvette. Anthony Proffer got a brand new dune buggy, and one of my friends got a brand new Mach 1 Mustang. Well, my great-grandfather, before he died, he gave me his 53 New Yorker Chrysler car tank, uh, moving, 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 moving museum. I mean, it was a monster. I hand-sanded it, Earl Shy painted it for $39.95 a Matador Red, and what was so funny, humorous, is that during the week, I would drive my car to school, and I'd park right there with the Corvettes, the Mach 1s, the Doom Buggies, and the Dusters, but every weekend, somebody wanted to borrow my car. Why? Because in the early 70s, there was a thing called the drive-in movie, and you pull into a great big concrete parking lot, and there's a, there's, a, there's a stake there and a speaker. You roll down your window, you put the speaker on the window, and there, bigger than, bigger than a mountain, was a, was a screen. And the reason they wanted my car is because I had bench seats. And so they would come get my car, then I would take their Doom buggy or their Mach 1 or their Corvette, and then I would go to Bellflower Boulevard where everybody cruised the boulevard. Some of them had hydraulics. They'd lift them up, go down. Some had big, wide tires. But I would take that Corvette, and from red light to red light, see how fast I could get it going from point A to point B. A little later in my high school year, Dave Phillips, who... Um, his father owned a tire store. They were very wealthy. Dave Phillips took it upon himself to build what's called a muscle car. And most of you can relate. You've seen, you've seen Mustangs or Camaros. Well, Dave Phillips took a 69 Chevelle, put a 454 with about 600 horse before people knew that there could be 600 horse. And Dave Phillips would put you in the front seat of his car and he would give you a challenge or a dare. And that challenger dare is he would put a $5 bill on the glove box. And listen, in 1971, $5 would fill any vehicle to the full with gas. $5 was $5 in those days. And his challenge was, if you can get that $5 bill before I hit 100 miles an hour, you can have it. So on the back streets, on the side streets in Downey, California, Dave would put that car in first gear. It would do 55 miles an hour in first gear. And then he'd slam it down in a second. It hit 100 miles an hour in second gear before he even went to third. One day we were out just goofing around, and there was a bird that flew across the road. 
and Dave Phillips simply double clutched, jumped on it, and hit that bird. That's how fast that car was. Well, here was the challenge. If you couldn't get the $5 bill, you had to give him a dollar. So he made his gas money before school because nobody could get the $5 bill. But I began to pay attention to his driving habit, and I realized that when he shifted that car from first gear to second gear, there was a moment. There was a pause. There was just a when everything kind of let up. And so the next time I went with him, I asked him double or nothing. I mean, you think $5 went a long way. Listen, $10, you could buy like 20 tacos at Taco Bell for $10. So I challenged him double or nothing. And Steve, he got on it, he jumped on it, lit it up, 55 miles an hour. But when he went to pull it, when he hit neutral, I threw myself forward and got that $5 bill and made him pay the other $5. And I bragged like my sophomore, senior year. I always bragged I was the guy that got the $5 because I learned to watch the transition. I learned to watch. There is a, there is a moment, there's a season there when you will be launched into a better place or a worse place. When you look at your, your, your growth as, a, as an adult, everyone in this house goes through seven phases or seven seasons. Your first phase begins as a child. Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I acted like a child. Now that I'm a man, I put off childish ways. However, Jesus said, unless you convert and become as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So no matter how smart we become, how old we become, what we accomplish, we never want to lose that ability as a child to enjoy the things that God has provided. And if you have not had a good laugh lately, you need to get the Three Stooges, or you need to get Abbott Costello. You need to set aside a window that you can do absolutely nothing but laugh. I mean, Steve Martin, Steve Martin the jerk, he hates these cans. Well, never mind. Anyway, we, we start off as a child, and then we step into a season called puberty. It's called the teenage years. I saw a bumper sticker that said, hire a teenager while they still know it all. What I've learned about a teenager, they never get full, they just get tired. My nephews would come from Florida, and there were four of them. The first thing I would do would go to the store, and I'd buy $200 worth of Captain Crunch and Cocoa Puffs and milk because that's all they did was eat, eat and play the whatever little games they brought with them. And so, and so you step into the season of puberty as a teenager. The third season you'll step into is the high school years, and those are the years when you develop most of your study habits, you develop your mannerism, you begin to develop your personality, depending on who you're hanging around, what you're listening to, who you're hanging with, what kind of music, and then you step into the fourth level of higher education, some college, some trade school, some just learning how to do it. Then you step into the season of a career. You actually say, this is what I want to do for several years, maybe retire, maybe or, or, or go in different areas, maybe a nurse becoming a doctor, maybe an accountant becoming a, a bank owner. But you step into that window where you're going to go earn a living and you're going to support yourself. And then you step into that place called marriage. And Dr. Seuss said it so well, a frightening, scary, a Hockendoss place, marriage. And then as you're married, you begin to enjoy that marriage, begin to enjoy one another. Lo and behold, here comes a child. So look what happens. We start as a child, and then we end up raising children. And then we, end, then we begin to raise their children, and then our life simply becomes a grandparent waiting for the grandkids to come over so you can bless them, spoil them, but you send them home before dark. <laughs> Am I communicating anybody in the building? So we see in every, every area of life, 
There are transitions that you will go through. Unfortunately, in some of these seven, seven phases or seven transitions, some bad things can happen. There can be a miscarriage. There can be a divorce. There can be a, a dad that abandons the family. There could be a financial crisis. There could be addictions. There could be bad habits, bad friends, bad places. There could be poverty. So as we go through the seven seasons that, 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 that God seems to set up that we're supposed to go through, a lot of things can happen that kind of get us kind of off track, off kilter. And sometimes it's important to stop, take a moment, and refocus. As you look in the kingdom of God, I thought this was so incredible that also in the kingdom of God, there are seven phases or seven transitions that a healthy Christian needs to go through. The first transition, obviously, is sin. We're all sinners. The youngest child in this place is a sinner. We're all born into sin, and our father is the devil. But there's a transition. Aren't you glad there's a transition called salvation, which we become a lamb? And then as a lamb, as we begin enjoying the things about being a lamb, all the things that lambs do, then we begin to develop the ministry of a servant. And we begin to serve and bless and enjoy being a part of the family. And then in that servanthood, we realize that we are friends of God. And he calls us by our first name. And he, and he walks with us and he talks with us and we learn his first name. Many of you don't know the first name of God. It's Andy. Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me, never mind. And then after, after we develop that friendship, then we learn, lo and behold, we are sons and daughters, joint heirs adopted into the family of God. And then we step into the phase of being the word. If you abide me, my words abide in you. you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. And then we end in that transformation as light. We are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill. So just in our personal life, as we go through the seven phases, in our spiritual life, we also go through the seven phases. But if you drag your feet and you miss any of the phases that God has for you, you'll have a tendency to be bored or, or complacent or frustrated or irritated. So this morning, as we begin to take inventory as to where we are, where we've been, what we're doing, I want to remind everyone in this house, you are one of two things. I said that so many times, it's funny because I've come up with like 20 different things. You are one of two things. <laughs> You're one of two things. Are you ready? You're a pearl in the making, or you're a caterpillar in transition. For several years, I've had a saltwater aquarium. I went from cocaine addiction to saltwater addiction. And I have tried through the past 20 some odd years, I've tried to raise certain things in the ocean. And one of the things I've never done well with is an oyster. I love there's some gorgeous oysters you can purchase at Bermuda Triangle in Chattanooga. But the reason you can't keep an oyster alive in a saltwater aquarium is because oysters thrive on dirty water. What happens is when the tide comes in, that oyster will open its jaws and it will suck in all the nutrients, all the proteins, all the amoeba that the ocean provides. However, in opening its jaws and sucking in all of that protein, there are times when a piece of sand or a broken piece of shell will, will, will be sucked up into that oyster's womb. 
And all of a sudden, lodged there in that oyster's womb, that oyster realizes there's something wrong. That little irritation is not supposed to be there. So that oyster will try to regurgitate and try to throw that, that piece of shell or that piece of sand out of its womb. Every time it regurgitates, it produces a film, a covering around that piece of sand. The more it regurgitates, how many of you don't know what the word regurgitate means? Anybody? Okay, let's make sure we're communicating. It means vomit. And as that pearl tries to vomit up that, that piece of, of sand, every time it tries to regurgitate, it produces a film. So through time, look at somebody and say, through time, in the process of time, a beautiful pearl is produced. And we understand as we read the book of Revelation that the, the, the gates of heaven are made of pure pearl. And I wonder if God just takes all of our frustrations that we go through, trying to become what we're wanting to be, what we're supposed to be, what we're trying to be. I wonder sometimes if God doesn't just take all that, all that junk and just form it to two beautiful pearls. Because from my uh, research, the size of the gates of heaven, the pearls have got to be larger than a Walmart. How cool is that? Is the gates are of pearl. And so maybe God takes all of our frustrations. One day we'll go to heaven and when we step in, we'll see all the things that we thought were, were, were fruitless, all the things that we thought that were frustrating, that God was actually keeping a record. And when we get to heaven, a part of those gates are there because we didn't quit. We didn't give up. We kept letting things throw up on us. We kept, can anybody relate? Hello, we kept going through. It's called life. It's called a journey. It doesn't always go well. People don't always treat us white. We don't always make the right decisions. Sometimes we get off at the wrong off-ramp. But it's called life. And so when you pry open that oyster in Hawaii, Pastor Ron, I've been there several times in Hawaii, when they open up a pearl, everybody says, Aloha. And I don't know why they say aloha, but that's just what they say. Aloha means hello, goodbye. Alo means in the presence of. Ha means the life giver. So when you say aloha, you're actually giving God's glory. A lot of people don't know that. But they say aloha. Look, there and behold, in all of that, all of that storm, all that struggle, all that regurgitation, something good happened. And I promise you, if you'll have the right attitude, try to smile once in a while. Just endure what you're going through. There's a, there's a possibility your problems and your challenges are what's motivating you towards the things of God, the presence of God, and the prayer of God. Yes. Pastor Terry taught us last week that the woman had an issue. We all have issues. Every one of us here today has an issue, whether you're a child or whether you're, you're a grandma. Everyone has issues. But her issue caused her to pursue Christ. And when things begin to go wrong in our life, hopefully we look towards the problem solver, hello, and ask him for help. And how many knows, as Pastor Rhonda mentioned, we don't understand prayer. We don't understand faith or praise or worship, but we know that God is a God of favor, slow to anger, full of mercy. He is a God of grace. He's a God of peace. And it seems like he seeks out, that's actually scriptural. God walks the circuit of earth looking for a people to bless. He's just walking around looking for someone to pour out his blessings upon. There's a seat for me. I'm going to bless that seat. There's a voice for me. I'm going to bless that. There's a business for me. And that's the kind of God that we serve. If you're not a pearl in the making, then you're a caterpillar that has realized there's more to you than you know. There's a caterpillar that you're tired of crawling everywhere. Am I talking to anybody in the building? You're tired of always getting the second best, the leftovers, all of that, and you determine there's something better for me. So you build that cocoon, and in that cocoon, you can't see what's going on, but in the inside, there's a crushing. 
where you're acknowledging your mistakes, you're acknowledging the things you need to do, the things you need to try again, the things you need to do over, the things you just need to retry. And in that process of that cocoon and that crushing, all of a sudden, 28 days later, that cocoon bursts wide open, and there's a beautiful monarch butterfly flying, no more crawling, hello, but flying everywhere. The challenge with the monarch butterfly, his life expectancy is 31 minutes because the sparrow loves to devour. Anyway, I should have told you that because we want you to pursue the metamorphosis. Look at somebody and say, it's a metamorphosis. I'm tired of crawling. I'm allowing God to do something on the inside and I'm going to burst forth as new snow. Now say it like you mean, I'm going to burst forth as new snow. Familiar story. My message this, long, this morning is not, is not lengthy. It's very brief. But my message this morning is taken from Matthew 16. To paint a little scenario, Jesus has fed the multitude. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's preached the Sermon on the Mount. He'd been going here, there, full-time itinerant for almost about, about three years, three years and two months. And so we see the disciples chilling. They're just sitting around, just enjoying one another, enjoying the fellowship, kind of like yesterday morning, just Saturday, coffee, uh, eggs, bacon. I'm sorry, I, said, oh, I wasn't going to talk about food. But we just had a good fellowship, had a devotion. And this is kind of the setting that I think that Jesus was in. They're all sitting. They're all, they're all just chilling. They're all just kind of veg, vegging out. And then Jesus asked him a question. Hey, guys. I don't know what he called me. He called him peeps. Hey, peeps. Hey, dudes. That's probably what I said. Hey, dudes. Who do men say that I am? What a question. Because they've seen him walk on water. They've seen him raise the dead. They've heard him speak like no other man has ever spoke. And so they begin to respond back and forth. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been murdered. Some say you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah had been murdered. Some say you're Isaiah. Isaiah had been murdered. That's scary. All three references they made all gave their life for the sake of the call. So Jesus said, well, okay. Whom do you say that I am? And then Simon, whose name means hearer of the word, speaks up and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of a living God. And Jesus looks at, at Simon and said, Flesh and blood, in other words, study, research, did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, watch this, a divine revelation, a spiritual door is open. But I want to tell you something. Every time there's a spiritual door open to the positive, there'll be a spiritual door open to the negative. Every evening, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening, enjoying his presence. But every morning, the devil in the form of a servant was trying to misdirect and try to frustrate and trying to tempt Eve. Do you see it? So when you feel like you've been in the presence of God, and you feel like you've heard from God, and you've got a revelation from God, and you really feel God's presence and power, by the time you get out that door and head it towards the parking lot, I promise you all hell is going to try to come against you in, in several areas of your life, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, whether it's mental. Sometimes, if we're not careful, it's just a matter of spiritual pride. And we all know that we hate spiritual pride, or God hates spiritual pride. But watch what happens to Peter. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter said, and, 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 and Jesus says, Peter, because of your revelation, I'm going to change your name. No longer is your name Simon, but now your name is Petros, which means rock. You're Peter. And upon this revelation, what revelation? 
Thou art the Christ, the Son of the God. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Watch this. When you have, when you have a divine revelation of who Jesus is and what he can do, I promise you there will be a name change. He changed his name from Simon to Peter, part of the rock. I want to tell you this morning, if your name once was called loser, you're now called a winner. If you were lost, you're now found. If you were poor, you're now rich. If you're cursed, you're now blessed. If you're bad, you're now good. If you're evil, you're now righteous. If you were sick, you're now healed. We grew up in the red hymnal singing, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Do I have a friend in the house this morning that realizes no longer drug addict, no longer alcoholic, no longer divorced. I'm a child of the Father. I'm a son of God. I'm adopted. I'm and I don't want to go through that, but we are a lot of things today because of Christ. And I'm glad that excite, excites you. In this, spiritual, in this spiritual pride, this spiritual moment, Jesus continues the conversation and says, listen, I've got to go to Jerusalem. The Pharisees are going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. And I'm going to die. And then I'm going to raise up from the dead. And the word said, let's, let's find that and read that together. Verse 21, Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Oh, I just told you that. Then Peter, watch this, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned, watch this, because some say he turned. Okay, so he's talking to Peter, but he turns, and he makes a statement. Get behind me, Satan. You're offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. We realize that Jesus has just complimented Peter who he was, what he, what he referred to, and a new name. And then Jesus turns not to Peter, but the demonic entity that Peter could not see, that you and I cannot see, that begin to whisper in Peter's ear, Why? Because there was a spiritual door open and he was a place where he was hearing spiritual things. I promise you, listen, you get a revelation at, at, at the extreme. You get a revelation at Karen Wheaton at the ramp. You get a revelation at, at, at Joe Olstein's church. The moment you get that revelation, that door remains open. If the enemy can, he'll try to step into that realm because he operates in that realm and try to put stuff in your mind, stuff in your heart, stuff in your spirit that you don't need in there. So there's a, reason, there's a reason why you're careful. There's a reason why you be careful what you do with that door. So Jesus looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't, you're not comprehending the things of God. You're just comprehending the things of man. That's the challenge, and I believe my notes made reference to that. That's one of the challenges with, with, with pride. I had a privilege several years ago speaking at a, uh, a sports banquet. Several athletes there, they had won the whatever football teams won. And uh, they asked me to come in and, and just give a pep talk. And just I did have the privilege of meeting Herschel Walker, shaking his hand, asking the infamous question, why is it, Herschel, every time you carry the football, you carry it 10 yards? He looked at me and said, preacher, that football's not heavy. And there was a news reporter there in the locker room that took that statement and put it in the newspaper. And that's where that came. Isn't that cool? He said, preacher, that football ain't heavy. 11 guys on the other side of the field trying to take his head off, and his attitude was... That football ain't heavy. What a great attitude. But here's, here's the point I made with those athletes that day. I said, talent is God-given, 
Be gracious. Praise is man-given. Be thankful. Conceit is self-given. Be careful. Pride, say this with me, pride produces Satan. You didn't say it like you meant it. Pride, say it with me, pride, pride produces Satan. There are six things God hates. Seventh is an abomination. But one of those things, God hates pride. He hates that. And that's the, that's the area the enemy tries to work in to puff us up or make us think that we're more spiritual than we really are or more important than we really are. Be very, very careful what I say here, but through years of ministry, I have noticed in council that, that Christians that go to churches, and, and it's, a, it's a good thing, that every single Sunday, the pastor preaches a salvation message and gives opportunity for, for people to give their hearts to God, which is an excellent message, it's an excellent altar call, but a lot of times people that attend that church, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they feel immune from the message because they're not a sinner, so sometimes they begin to walk in pride and see themselves a little bit more puffed up than the sinner. Do you remember the Pharisee that said, I thank you that I'm not like that that publican right there, and that, that publican, not Republican, that, that sinner beat his chest and said, have mercy on me. So, so pride, can, pride can develop in almost every single area of life. But as we look at the life of Peter, Peter had, say this to your, to your neighbor, you have more going for you than you have going against you. Now say it like you mean, you've got more going for you than you have going against you. Four things I noticed about Peter. Number one, his personality. Those of you that have done the test, he was a sanguine choleric. I am a sanguine choleric. I'm one of those guys where if we're in a restaurant and somebody takes out a pistol and starts shooting people, I'm going to attempt to take them down. That's, that's my nature. It's like taking the sword and cutting the ear off the servant. It's like walking on water. And we're talking about a sanguine, we're talking about somebody that gets out of the boat, makes things happen. Hey, he, mess, he may mess up, but at least he makes the effort. We've got to give him a, some kind of adoration for that. The second thing I learned about Peter is his purpose. He embraced his mission. He comes to realize who he is in Christ and what God wants, wants to do through him. And he gives his life for the sake of the call. The third thing I want to bring to your attention is people skills. He was like a magnet. People seemed to be drawn to him and he was drawn to, to people. And the fourth thing I want to remind you of is his passion. Again, the guy that will, listen, there's only one person besides Jesus Christ that's ever walked on water, ever. And that's Peter. His passion. I am told by doctors, I don't know how accurate it is, we have nurses here that can confirm. I am told that the ear attached to the side of the head, there are thousands of membranes, there are thousands of vessels, that the ear is one of the most difficult things to reattach to a, to a person's body. Peter whacks it off and Jesus said, no, Peter, faith comes by hearing, he's going to need that ear, and he slaps that back on there. One of the greatest miracles, as far as a doctor is concerned, is replacing the ear. But Peter was just that kind of guy. He had that kind of mindset. Notice, if you will, and you know what, I've got the scripture, and you can write these down if you want. Jesus realizes the day has come. He sends the disciples to secure a room. They go to the room. 
And while they're talking, while they're, while they're fellowshipping, while they're breaking bread, he does something very special. He takes the bread and breaks it, and he says, I will not do this again until the kingdom is manifested, or the, the, the return of Christ. He takes the juice or wine, whatever your belief. I personally believe it was wine. He, took, he takes the wine. He dips the, the bread in the wine. He says, I will not drink from the vine again until that, that kingdom is fulfilled. While they're sitting around, while they're talking, two or three things happen. The first thing that happens is that Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. I want to show you how, 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 how it's so easy to become insecure in your relationship with God. The word says in one text, every single disciple ask him, is it me? And these are guys that had traveled with him. They took up the 12 baskets. They watched him calm the storm. They watched him raise the dead. They heard him day after day, him telling them who they were and what they were going to do, that they were going to change the world. But yet every one of them had doubt. It, it's, it's, it's okay to walk in doubt as long as there's enough faith in your spirit to deal with the doubt. But listen, if Jesus' disciples have been with him three years, question, is it me? Then, then, then don't be so hard on yourself as you judge your prayer life, as you judge your praise life, as you judge your, what you give the kingdom. Don't be so hard on yourself because the guys that actually hung with him, stayed with him, camped out with him, every one of them said, is it me? Jesus says, the person I hand this cup to, for him to dip his bread, it's him. And he, and he goes straight to Judas. What is so... Irritating might be the word, frustrating might be the word, overwhelming might be the word. If we had a prophetic ministry, if, 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 if a prophet was here this morning and a prophet pointed out, Pastor Todd, and said, the decisions you have made are erroneous, you'll be dead in the morning. Scary word. I would like to think that I would do whatever humanly, spiritually, earthly, mentally possible to approach Pastor Todd and say, hey, we got to turn this around. Is anybody with me? Okay, you, you get a word. The person I give this cup to, you're the one that's going to sell me. You know what Jesus said? It would have been better for him had he never been born. What a scary statement. That, those words never came from the mouth of Christ again. But all four Gospels talk about this moment. And instead of them, Donnie immediately, immediately going to Todd and say, what are you doing, Todd? Why are you betraying Christ? What, what, what's, what, what, what are you thinking? I mean, I don't know. Some of us probably would have got him down and beat the living daylights out of him. Hello. I mean, I'd rather beat you up than you die and go to hell. Help me. I'd rather, I'd rather frustrate your purpose and your plan and your life than for you to die and go to hell. But all of a sudden, led by Peter, there was conversation as to who was the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. In two different passages, here's what Peter said. Though all of them deny you, I'll never deny you. Though I die, I will not deny you. Sanguine choleric, be careful what you say. Make sure you know what you're saying and have the ability to stand behind it. You know the story. Judas came with a band of men. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. There's, there was one part there, Steve, that I saw this morning that I've not preached it for years and years and years. 
But the, the anointing on, on Jesus' life, he was not operating in despair. He was not operating in doubt or fear. He was headed to the cross. He knew where he was headed. But let me show you the power of Jesus Christ. When the guards came and he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. It's actually mistranslated there. He said, I am. You know what happened? All the guards fell down. They just fell down. They just were knocked down by the power of him saying, I am. So he was not struggling. He was not frustrated. He was not some little wuss making a decision to die. He was ready to die. He said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour came I into the world. He was born to die. He knew his mission. He knew his purpose. And he, and he, and he, and he pursued it gladly. They all ran off. You know the story. John and Peter come up to the, come up to the gate. Someone, John knows someone on the inside. I think actually determined John was actually a part of the house of, of the uh, priest. But anyway, John was invited inside. Peter stayed on the outside. Be very careful when you see God moving in special ways in your life that you don't get outside the fellowship. You don't get outside that flow, outside that anointing, outside that favor. I, I, I completely missed the laughter movement. I completely missed it. I didn't fall down. I didn't giggle. I didn't jerk. I didn't bark like a dog. I missed all that. But there was a, there was a season when there was an outpouring of joy. And I was in Hawaii. And I was preaching revival there at the first assembly. And while I was preaching, people started laughing. They're just laughing. Well, you first look, make sure your pants aren't unzipped. Make sure you have nothing hanging from your nose. Make sure, you know, why are they laughing? So after the service, I told the pastor, Pastor, I, I, I tell a lot of jokes and a lot of humor, but I, I'm not, I mean, people are just laughing. Because, oh, he said, Reinhard, uh, um, help me. Rodney, Rodney Howard Brown had, had been there the week before, and they were, all, they were all just falling out laughing, falling out, falling out. Well, you know, I missed all that. But there were people in my life that came to me and said, that's not of God. That's not, that's not, and you know what? I was very careful to kindly say to them, be careful what you say is not of God. Be careful what kind of judge, I, although I'd never, I, I, think, I think Pastor Rhonda went to hear Benny Hinn. I think the whole, the whole choir fell out. But you know what? That, 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 that didn't happen to me. I've only been slain twice in my life. And I'll tell you, the, the first time was 34 years ago at Lee University. I was a bodybuilder. I wore a shirt about five sizes too small. Went to Westmore. Dr. Lowry was preaching. Called me up and knocked me down. There was nothing spiritual about it. I just laid there until he went away. I had one eye open. When I saw, when I saw, I'm serious. He knocked, he, I had a red spot on my forehead for about four. I mean, it just knocked me out. The second time, Pastor Rhonda made reference to her uh, Wednesday night. When Dr. Fuchsia Pickett was here. She touched me. I fell like a tree. It's the only, only time I've ever been slain in the spirit by, by a godly matron. I, I hope some of that anointing soaked off on me because then it wasn't very long that she went to be with the Lord. But be careful that you don't find yourself outside the move of God. That's, that's what will happen in transition. The first thing that happens in transition, when the spiritual door opens, beware the enemy doesn't come in like an angel of light, and some, and some way try to frustrate you. The second thing in transition, be careful what you say you never will do. Be very, I'll never, don't ever say I'll never, because I promise you that's probably the one thing that you're going to, 
that you're, that you're going to do. The third thing is don't find yourself outside of fellowship. There's a reason why two or three gather together. There's a reason why there's a local church. There's a reason why there's a ministry for you to be a part. There's a reason for all of that. And then the word says that as he was standing there by the, as he was standing there by the door, one of the people of the temple said, John went in and, he's, and, and, the, and the person said, wait a minute, you're, you're one of his disciples. And pardon my friends, he said, hell no. He cursed. He said, no, it ain't me. And apart. So then we find him by the fire. Let me tell you something in transition. It gets cold in transition. When you don't feel like God is feeding you, God is blessing you, God is ministering, that transition is going through and you're beating yourself up for things you said, things you did, maybe, maybe actions you feel are, are damning or, or condemn, condemnable, it gets cold. So Peter finds himself by the fire getting warm, and then someone else says, wait a minute, you're one of those guys. He goes, no. I, I, and then there was one that was related to the servant that got the ear cut off, a cousin. You're the dude that whacked off my cousin's ear. And Peter denied it. He cussed. And then what happened? The cock crowed three times. How wild is that? Cock crowed three times. Dies. He's murdered. He raises from the dead. He's seen three times. Up room the first time. With Thomas the second time. The third time, even though Peter had encountered the presence of God, the resurrection, had seen Christ resurrected, he was still beating himself up. So Peter decides, I'm going fishing. So everybody says, we're going fishing with you. That's that leadership. That's, that per That's the tools that God has given you to be a blessing. We're going fishing with you. So they get out there, they're fishing, and all of a sudden they hear somebody call them from shore. And the voice says, have you got any fish? You know what? There's nothing more frustrating than sitting there fishing all night and some little punk walk up and say, hey, you caught anything? I said, well, I, if I catch this one and two more, I'll have three. Right. We went to the Dead Sea. Charlie and Mona brought me some hand lotion. That's, that's mine, by the way, from the Dead Sea. And, and Kelly, at the Dead Sea, there's this old, 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 old Hebrew guy, and he's got his, just got it like a, like, a, like a pole and like a, a Zebco 22, like a real cheap rod and reel, big long reel, and he's and he's uh, he's fishing the Dead Sea. When I went with Marcus and Joni, I was the only one on the tour that got in the water. I actually I actually got got in the water. In the Dead Sea, you can't sink; it's impossible. The 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 salt is so thick; it's just like sitting in a lounge chair. So we know that we know that the Dead Sea was a part of Job's wife. We understand why the Dead Sea is there, and we understand why the chemical or why the salt is there. But I couldn't figure out why this guy was sitting on a bucket fishing. I fished my whole life. That's all, that's all dad would do for pastime. We'd go to the Long Beach Pier. We'd fish all night. So I walked up. John Price and Marcus Lamb was with me. And I walked up and I said, what, what, what are you catching? What do what, what, what you got in the bucket? I mean, don't you want to know what's in the bucket? What's in the bucket? And he said, and in those days, it's changed now, but in those days, everything was a dollar. You bought a water, it was a dollar. You get tipped, it was a dollar. You took a picture of somebody in Israel, it was a dollar. He said, one dollar, one dollar to look at my bucket, one dollar. So, being the sharp, educated ministers that we were, Marcus, John, and I all gave him a dollar. He takes the three dollars and he says, I'm fishing for sucker fish. And you're the first three I've caught today. 
opened up the bucket, and he had a bunch of dollars in there from yesterday. There's a reason why I told y'all that. I don't remember why, but it seemed like it was important at the time. Oh, yeah. He goes, I'm going fishing. Okay, so they're fi- who knows how long they're fishing. But this guy on the shore, I, and I, it, it's so irritating. I mean, I mean, it's like, did you kill anything? Well, I took a gun, didn't I? I mean, that, I mean, that's the wrong attitude to have. That's the attitude I have. I said, hey, you guys caught anything? And it's cast your net on the other side. Well, immediately, the order, the way Jesus said it, Peter knew exactly who it was. It's Jesus. They cast the net, Maga, and Peter didn't stay to help him bring in the net. He swam to shore because he knew it was Jesus. And then when he gets to shore, this is very important. When he gets to shore, Jesus already has fish on the grill. Don't ever think it's all about you. Don't ever think you're the only singer, you're the only teacher, you're the only preacher, you're the only Christian. He's got, a, he's got an entourage of people that are serving him. Don't think it's all about you, but notice what he says. It's so powerful. Add your fish to mine. They caught 153 fish. There's a reason for that. 2,000 years ago, there were 153 countries of the world. There are 170 now, but there are 153. And what Jesus, each fish represented a country that these disciples were going to rock their world and turn the world right side up with the gospel. Prophetically, 153. Jesus says, bring the fish you caught and add it to the fish that we have. And that's the way he works. He, he, God needs you. God wants to use you. God, God believes in you. God has invested in you. There are things that you can, you're doing that no one else can do. That's why you were created. That's your purpose. That's your destiny. That's your, that's your mission. They add the fish. Okay, watch this. This is the third time he's been seen. Peter denies three times. Jesus asked Peter three times. Peter, do you love me more than these? And there's two or three ways you can interpret that because it's not clear. Was Jesus asking Peter, do you love me more than you love fish? Your career, your ministry, your hobby, your goals, your fun time? Or Peter, do you love me more than you love the the, the other disciples love me? Or Peter, do you love me more than just the moment? It's got to be exciting watching Jesus cook. Hello. Hello. I don't think there's ever any record of him cooking in, the, in his whole life. And here he was. He cooks. He provides. So, so sometimes God is asking us, do you love me more than the moment? Do you live for me just for the moment? Just when you feel good, you win a $20 lottery ticket. It's Christmas Eve. Is that, is that when you love me? Do you love me more than you love all the toys you have? Do you love me more than you love all the money? All, do you love me more? Or do you love me more than the others love me? Whatever Whatever, three times, Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. The last time Jesus asked Peter was a breakthrough because Peter really was upset by this time. And he said, Lord, you know I love you. The first two times, Jesus says, feed my sheep. The third time, Jesus says, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. So so don't just feed the spiritual house. But feed the house is not spiritual. And we see Peter is called to the Gentile. How ironic that God had it all set it up, had it all laid it out, had it, had it just exactly where it wanted to be. Peter, you deny me three times. I give you three times to confess me. Slate's white clean. It's a brand new day. 
go and rock the world. Didn't condemn him. Didn't, didn't give him a lesson. Didn't say, well, Peter, I'm really disappointed. I really expected you at least to cut the dude's head off. Hello, just his ear. I really didn't expect you to cuss three times. I mean, he, did, he didn't burn him. Didn't throw him under the bus. Knew the pressure. Understood what Peter and the disciples were going through. Received them just where they were, just for what they were. And says, okay, now you go change the world. Simple, ordinary, cussing fishermen. I believe they loved Led Zeppelin. I believe they were rock and rollers. Just my personal opinion. I believe they were just like us, and they had the ability to change the world. Six quick thoughts. To survive your season of transition, number one, take 100% responsibility for your life. Quit blaming your potty training. Quit blaming the fact that you're raised in L.A.J. Quit talking about somebody ran off and left me. So, take 100%. It is what it is. Here it is. This is it right here. This is what's got to change. This mindset, this, this mentality, this, this has got to change. I am what I am because of the decisions I made. I made some bad decisions. There's some repercussions. The wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace wipes the slate like the liquid paper. The blood. It wipes the slate clean, and we're able to start all over again. But we've got to make sure we don't blame everything and everybody for our mistakes and failures. Deal with it. I did it. I made the decision. I was wrong. This is the price I paid. Now I've got to get back on my feet. Secondly, be clear why you're here. Why am I on earth? The Bible will tell your purpose, your plan, your passion. Find out why you're here. Find out what gifts you have that can be blessed in the body. Number three, decide what you want. Decide what you want. Wendy got tired of alcohol. She got tired of not having a job. She got tired of not having a place to live. She got tired of her family not being around her. She made a stand. She drew a line in the sand and said, this is where I'm going to be planted like a tree. And I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to stay clean. Make a decision. Number four. What you believe, decide what you want, believe in yourself. I can do this. Hello? Yes. I can do this. This, this is, I can stay clean. I can, I can get a degree. I can get a job. I can support. I can have a family. I can reconcile. I can restore. I can do this. Believe in yourself. Believe it's possible in yourself. And number six, probably the most important part, make something happen for someone else with the tools, the abilities that God has given you now. Make something happen for somebody else. This past week I was broke. I really, I was so poor I couldn't even pay attention. But a little mom came to our lobby. I wasn't even supposed to be here. I wasn't even, I wasn't even, I don't remember, I think I came by the aquarium was something going to the cram, went to put one in the cram, and there was a little, a little mom. And, you know, I feel, I feel like the Lord whispers to me and says, don't give a dollar. I believe he does. I believe the Lord says, help her. And so I had, I had in my pocket money for Wendy's, some gas, and a, and a Starbucks. So my Wendy's, my gas, my Starbucks was in my hand, 
But I realized I could go without Wendy's. I could, I could be careful with the gas, and I certainly didn't need Starbucks. So I gave her what was mine to spend on myself, and I gave it to her. And I felt like the, I, I felt like the Lord nudged me. Can I tell you about nudges? A tree you couldn't put your arms around fell on one of my houses. And my insurance policy says I'm not covered for acts of God. Well, I personally didn't believe that God did that to me. I, I just think the tree blew over because the rain was blowing. I thought God had nothing to do with it. And so I, prom- I promise you, I shared this with Pastor Todd. I felt, call your, incom- call your insurance company. Felt that. I felt, call your insurance company. I turned around to see who touched me. I'm freaking out. There's no one there. I pick up the phone. I call the company. Monday, 1130, they're coming to give me a check for the damages the tree did to the house. That's nudges. When she walked, I prayed. She had pancreatic cancer. I prayed for her. Dad's a Baptist pastor. I prayed for him. She walked out the door. I felt the Lord say, she'll never pay you back. But I will. She'll never pay you back. But I will. Now, Steve, that's a promise I would take to the bank. Pastor Terry, that's a promise I would take. If God says he'll pay, he'll pay me back, could I give her any more? Wait, I'll chase her down. Can I? Hello? You want to partner with that kind of mindset. You want to partner with that kind of flow. Make something happen for somebody. Two quotes, a short story, and then lunch. Brian Tracy, I have no idea who that is. Does anybody know who Brian Tracy is? Is it a philosopher? Is it a educator? Is it a philanthropist? Let me read you his quote. Life is like a combination lock. Your job is to find the right numbers in the right order so you can have anything you want. Thomas Edison, if we did all the things we're capable of doing, we would literally astound ourselves. Let me say it again. If we did all the things we are capable of doing, we would literally astound ourselves. Pastor Ronna shared a quote, the guy that found the cure for polio. 200 times he tried, but we made a statement. I didn't fail 200 times. I just learned 200 times how not to do it. They say Thomas Edison tried to make the light bulb work a thousand times. Aren't you glad he didn't give up? Aren't you glad he stuck with it? Aren't you glad that he pursued with the talents and gifts that was given to him? Uh, do we have some like soft music? Something by the Eagles? I got a peaceful, easy feeling, something like that. As she stood in front of her fifth grade class, on the very first day of school, she told the children a white lie. Like most teachers, she looked at her students and said that she loved them all the same. However, that was impossible because there in the front row, slumped in a seat, was a little boy named Teddy Stoddard. Mrs. Thompson had watched Teddy the year before and noticed that he did not play well with the other children, that his clothes were messy, and that he constantly needed a bath. In addition, Teddy could be unpleasant. It got to the point where Mrs. Thompson would actually take delight in marking his papers with a broad red pen, marking bold X's, and then putting a big fat F at the top of his papers. 
At the school where Mrs. Thompson taught, she was required to review each child's past records, so she put Teddy's off to the last. However, when she reviewed his file, she was in for surprise. Teddy's first grade teacher wrote, Teddy's a bright child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly, has good manners. He's a joy to be around. His second grade teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student, well-liked by his classmates, but he's troubled because his mother has a terminal illness and life at home must be a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, his mother's death has been hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father doesn't show much interest and his home life will soon affect him if some steps aren't taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn, doesn't show much interest in school, he doesn't have many friends, and he sometimes sleeps in class. By now, Mrs. Thompson realized the problem, and she was ashamed of herself. She felt even worse when her students brought her Christmas presents wrapped in beautiful ribbons and bright paper, except for Teddy's. His present was a clumsily wrapped in the heavy brown paper that he got from a grocery bag. Mrs. Thompson took pains to open it in the middle of the other students' presents. Some of the children started to laugh when she found a rhinestone bracelet with some of the stones missing and a bottle that was one quarter full of perfume. But she stifled the children's laughter when she exclaimed how pretty the bracelet was, putting it on and dabbing some of the perfume on her wrist. Teddy Stoddard stayed after school that day, just long enough to say, Mrs. Thompson, today you smell just like my mother used to smell. After the children left, she cried for at least an hour. On that very day, she quit teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and instead she began to teach children. Mrs. Thompson paid particular attention to Teddy. As she worked with him, his mind seemed to come alive. The more she encouraged him, the faster he responded. By the end of the year, Teddy had become one of the smartest kids in the class. And despite her lie that she would love all the children the same, Teddy became one of her teacher's pets. A year later, she found a note under her door from Teddy telling her that she was still the best teacher he'd ever had his whole life. Six years went by before she got another note from Teddy. He then wrote that he had finished high school, magnum cum laude, and she was still the best teacher he'd ever had in life. Four years after that, she got another letter saying that while things had been rough at times, he'd stayed in school, had stuck with it, and would soon graduate from college with the highest of honors. He assured Mrs. Thompson that she was still the best and favorite teacher he'd ever had his whole life. Then four more years passed, and yet another letter came. This time he explained that after he got his bachelor's degree, he decided to go a little farther. The letter explained that she was still the best and favorite teacher he'd ever had, but by now his name was a little bit longer. The letter was signed, Theodore F. Stoddard, M.D. The story doesn't end there. You see, there was yet another letter that spring. Teddy said he'd met this girl and was going to be married. He explained that his father had died a couple years ago, and he was wondering if Miss Thompson would agree to sit at the wedding in the place that was usually reserved for the mother of the groom. Of course, Miss Thompson did, and guess what? She wore the bracelet, the one with several rhinestones missing. Moreover, she made sure that she was wearing the perfume that Teddy remembered his mother wearing on their last Christmas together. They hugged each other, 
And Dr. Stoddard whispered in Miss Thompson's ear, Thank you, Mrs. Thompson, for believing me. Thank you so much for making me feel important and showing me that I can make a difference. Miss Thompson, with tears in her eyes, whispered back. She said, Teddy, you have it all wrong. You're the one that taught me that I can make a difference. I didn't know how to teach until I met you. For those of you that don't know, Teddy Stoddard is the doctor at Ohio Methodist Hospital in Des Moines that has the Teddy Stoddard Cancer Center. Make something happen for somebody else. Doesn't have to be a big thing. Here's just a teacher, eyes open, learning that there are potential in others that she could pull out. Decide that 2014 is going to be the year that you get out of the box, you get out of the boat, you get out of the pew, and you make a difference in someone's life. Whether by sowing groceries, whether by just using the gifts and fruits and talents that you have. Our, our banker was very kind to us this week, did something incredible for us. Courtney and I sent her a little flower arrangement. She sent a note back. You'd have thought we'd given her a Cadillac. Just the appreciation of being appreciated. Just the, the, there's just someone cared. Someone, someone noticed. Someone paid attention. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. If you're here this morning and you've wandered away from God, and, and like Peter, you might be standing by a fire where it's cold,